Hello and welcome to Parently, where we tap into the unique experiences and perspectives of parents to celebrate the joys and honor the challenges of child rearing. With new interviews each week, this is a podcast for moms and dads seeking an empowering community and a little levity. Now here's your host, Kelsey Higgins. Hello and welcome to Parently. Today's episode is another awesome one. We have a really great guest here, uh, Nina Hickman. Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have a lot of interesting perspectives, more than maybe just one unique facet. So I thought you would be an awesome guest. We have a lot of different topics to dive into in our short time here together. So let's just start with some basic information. Tell me about you. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Minnesota. Uh, I guess you could say I split my childhood between Minneapolis and Wayzata. Mm. Um, mom, dad, brother, sister. My sister has Down syndrome. So she's basically the reason why we left Minneapolis and went out to the suburbs so that she could have um, better schooling. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then I moved to Chicago for college and then came back um, after I graduated and thought I would go back to Chicago. But I think it's been, I don't know, over 10 years, maybe 12 years now, and I'm still here. Oh, is that because of your hubba hubba? Yeah. You know, it's just life. You say you're going to do all these wild things and then, yeah, you you get married and settle down and family's here and it, it just made sense. So tell me about your family. Where'd you meet your husband? What, who, who's in your family? So I guess like my little nuclear family is me and my husband, Dave, um, and our son, Nikos, who's 20 months old. Um, and then extension of that, you know, I have my parents and my siblings, and then I also have a pretty large, um, you know, my mom's side of the family is also mostly here in the Twin Cities too. You know, one thing I want to talk about, and I, I'm just going to mention it now because I don't want to forget about it. Your sister. So we had a whole episode on Down syndrome that I think was really, really, really great. And if you haven't, uh, I have watched listeners, it. did you listen to it, Nina? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah. and I, I was just going to make a quick plug for it for listeners that they haven't. It's our very first episode of season one. So last season, uh, and we had a great guest on there talking about her son with Down syndrome. But I was curious what your perspective is, Nina, being a sibling of somebody with Down syndrome. How have you seen that uh, benefit and or create challenges for you and your family? Sure. Um, you know, I know there are like siblings and families who struggle with this where maybe it's not as easy um, but I think I'm the youngest. So Jessica goes, Justin, Jessica, then me. Um, and I think because she's older than me, it was like, I never knew anything different. Mm. Um, and I think I, you know, I don't know how old I was when I realized Jessica was different, but it was just never an issue. And the only time it maybe briefly was, was like as a teenager, when I felt like she got more attention than me, mm-hmm. which I probably would feel with having an older sister period. Mm. Um, but for us, it's a benefit. Jessica is a blessing. She's a sweetheart. She's gentle. She's taught us about empathy and compassion and, and what it means to be family and take care of one another. And, 
you know, for us, there's, there are so many more benefits to, um, Jessica having downs and being the person she is than, than ever any, um, any challenges, I would say. Very cool. I love that. Okay. So, uh, let me bring us back here because I sidetracked us. I just want to get your perspective here. So you mentioned Nikos, your 20 month old, who is Mm -hmm. the cutest little (laughs) honey. So sweet. Did you always want kids? Always. I always wanted kids. Um, I've been pretty set on four since I was like 10. And you I got don't some think, work to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I think at this point in the game, like four is probably out of the question. You know, Dave would be fine with two. I think we'll probably settle on three. Um, but always wanted to be a mom. That's that's something I like knew without a doubt. Even if like, you know, I would have been happy pushing it out a few more years if I could like have certainty, certainty that we would have like kids be able to do mm-hmm. it. But I always wanted to be a mom. Is it what you expected it to be? Nope. It is not. (laughs) (laughs) How's it different? Oh my gosh. Like I, you know, when I went into pregnancy, I mean, I've, I've had a ton of childcare experience, so I don't think I went in with rose colored glasses. I was anxious. I was like, I'm going to lose myself. What about time? I'm never going to sleep. It's going to be so much work. Mm. And all of that stuff is totally true. But at the same token, I also was like, but I'm going to be able to do it. And I'm going to put them in daycare and I'm not going to feel guilty about it because I'm like, I just thought that it was going to be totally fine. And my kid's going to sleep because I'm going to sleep train him and I'm going to have all these rules and structure and I'm going to make this like miracle family and it will be stress-free. Nope. It has not been that. I mean, it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. And he's, he's perfect. He's got a beautiful temperament, but like, no, my kid doesn't sleep till 730. Never has. I don't think he ever will. He still wakes <laughs> up between five and five thirty. Today it was four thirty. Oh man. You know, it's and like the whole part of all oh, I'm gonna do all this stuff for myself and I'm gonna put myself first because then I'll be a better mother and a better partner. We never come first. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's been I think probably the most challenging thing. Mm-hmm. Because you, you always it's like the mom guilt. I, I was like, Yeah, it's real, but I didn't realize how real it was or how deeply I would feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I constantly feel guilty for working or guilty for not being with him, but then I want my own time. But then it's like, well, but if I don't utilize it, how I think I should, is it even worth it? Maybe I should just be with him. Like, it's just a constant push pull battle that I have with myself. And I think COVID made that a little bit more challenging too, Absolutely. since we're pretty isolated. So I'm still trying to figure all of that out and I'm hopeful that it will get easier Mm-hmm. Um, and the second kid, it will be like a little bit easier of a transition, but no, mm-hmm. it was, it was tough starting this like new part of my life. I think a lot of moms struggle with that. I, I have to tell you, I made an appointment for a pedicure tomorrow, which is the first one I've had in over a year. Good for you. Thank you. And I felt bad doing it. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to yeah. schedule it during nap time because I don't want to miss any time with my exactly. kid. Exactly. You know, I work full time and so I don't, he's in daycare. And so weekends are the only time I get to see him. And it's just, it's all the time. You're always yeah. weighing out and you're right. You're, you are so right, but it's easier said than done. Putting Completely. yourself first is so important. Yeah, there needs to be like classes on it or it needs to be like mandated somehow or mm-hmm. the dads need to take a class on like how to help your wife 
be a little bit less selfless because I don't think I don't think dads think about it like Dave wants to go golf he's not like oh I'm gonna miss out on six hours of time with my son you know like yeah absolutely and 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 our society in in so many ways is not set up to give women exactly that opportunity which is a whole nother conversation Uh, (laughs) whole other podcast well what is your what's your favorite part of being a mom oh gosh watching him learn, um, taking information, grow, how he's changed, seeing the person he has become, um, even like seeing how I adapt. Yeah. I just, he like amazes me every day. And I know every parent says that, but like, it's, it's real. Like when he knows his colors and he like can recite them and like, I just think he's the sweetest little thing and I'm obsessed with him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay, one thing that I was interested in in talking to you about today is you grew up in a Persian American home. I did, which is a bit of a unique experience at least for, you know, a, a large portion of the population and for <laughs> a lot of my listeners for sure I know it is. So, I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about that. What was your experience like? I guess mostly positive. My my dad is is American. He's uh, from New Jersey, typical white guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom grew up in Iran and came here. I want to say like halfway through graduate school, she did something. I don't know, partly in Holland and partly here. I don't exactly know how she divvied it up, but mm-hmm. um, she had sort of followed her siblings, and everybody eventually ended up here, um, mostly in Minnesota. And for us, you know, I didn't realize it was a different type of home or culture until I was a bit older. And like my friends told me, but I think by and large, the closeness within our family, um, how much time we spend together, how we celebrate things, um, that was always like the biggest part of, of the culture is like you spend time with your family and you see them multiple times a week and there's these big gatherings with lots of food and mm. you know even the littlest things are celebrated so I, I grew up knowing that like that is what it meant to be family and then as I got older I realized that's I wouldn't say totally unique but it's much more normal in um a Persian family or even like Latino families like there's a culture to it that doesn't always translate to every culture, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. What was that like bringing Dave into the fold? Was he like, what is what is this? Or did he embrace it? I think a little bit of both. You know, I, I anybody who's an outsider will say it's really hard walking into your family because there's big personalities and big opinions and people are loud and um and there's a lot of us. And I think you have to like, I don't know, kind of, maybe it's like treading water for a little bit until you figure it out. And he's not like introverted or anything, but it was completely foreign to anything he'd ever been a part of. Mm. Um, Even like down to the food we eat is totally different. So it took him a while to get, I don't say totally different, but Persian food is not American food. Um, It took him a while to get used to you know, the different dynamics or how much time we spend together or maybe how like enmeshed some boundaries are and we're always in each other's business. Like, I think that is, um, you know, something that takes some getting used to. Sure. But now it's, it's great. Like now he has a, a whole other extension of family and wonderful relationships with everybody. 
do you feel like you have you and Dave have built that into your own nuclear family with with Nikos do you bring some of those experiences and background into your parenting I think we're trying to um you know again I think because of COVID it didn't allow us to see our extended family we were really pretty isolated to keep my mom and and my sister especially safe Mm -hmm. because they're both high risk um but what we envisioned was cousins babysitting and seeing everybody regularly and aunts and uncles. And mm. that is what we thought it would be, that we would have so much support and we'd always be together. And, you know, six months in that, that changed. So now we're just starting to like start to see everybody again, which has been so wonderful seeing my cousins with him and getting to spend more time together. Um, but it's certainly something that we want to continue like he needs to know what it means to be a family and have this extension and um and certainly keep him part of that culture I don't want to lose it either because I'm like the next generation you know I wasn't Mm -hmm. born in Iran um and I want him to be able to carry that to his family as well did you say you were born in Iran I I wasn't born in Iran so I feel like you know I'm American um and I, I feel like it's you know generation after generation you could get further and further away from that original culture. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure that it, it stays, it stays a part of his life. Definitely. It's really important. And it, it's something that I'm sure you have to make a conscious effort, you know, to, yeah. to do. you know, I didn't know that your dad was from Jersey, but I feel like now <laughs> that I know that I can hear it in your voice. Really? Yeah. I think the way I say orange is I think all my dad in Jersey and yeah. 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 Does he does he have a pretty thick Jersey accent? I don't think he does, but there are certain words that for sure are East Coast. We'll be back after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Strip. After several months of maternity leave, I am back to work which means I'm also back to wearing makeup. While I do enjoy wearing makeup, I have never enjoyed the process of removing it at the end of the day. Until now, I've been using a new product I love called Strip. It does more than just remove your makeup, though it does do that well. It is skincare that truly nourishes your face with nutrients and vitamins, leaving behind noticeably healthier looking skin. It's made up of clean ingredients and it doesn't have a zillion steps that, frankly, I just don't have time for. I've even shared it with family and friends and we all agree it leaves your skin feeling so soft and looking replenished. My favorite product is the Caviar Jelly Remover. It removes my makeup while hydrating with these fun bursting nutrient bubbles. Support your favorite podcast with an awesome product. Check out Strip and use my discount by visiting stripyourmakeup.com forward slash parently. Strip your makeup, not your skin. Now back to Parently with your host, Kelsey Higgins. Nina, we talked a little bit about trying to juggle childcare with your work and all of the fun things that go along with that. What do you do for a profession? Yeah, um, I am a mental health therapist. Um, In Minnesota, it's licensed professional clinical counselor. 
Okay. And I work with, I guess you could say three populations. It's mostly the BIPOC population, um, mostly women. The only time I work with men is with couples and families. Okay. Um, and aside from couples, which most of them are often very blended in their ethnicities and race um, and culture, the families I work with often have high needs children. Mm. Um, and I, before Nikos, I did all in-home family therapy. And since COVID and Nikos, that's sort of started to change. But Mm -hmm. that's really where I started was doing in-home family therapy. And now I'm in private practice with mostly individual clients. Okay. I'm not familiar with the industry at all. So I'm just trying to think through this. If your private practice, is that essentially saying like you're your own boss? I am. Yes. Okay, cool. How do you feel about that? Do you like it? I do. Yeah. Um, I'll never go back to the other other way of doing things. Um, It affords me a lot of flexibility. It has downsides too, like no PTO, um, things like that. But I get to make my own schedule. I get to choose the clients that I work with. um, And I get to do the work how I want to do it. I don't have to do it based on how my agency wants me to do it. Sure. How did you become interested in therapy? Um, I think like most therapists, you know, childhood that probably warranted a little bit of self-reflection and introspection and Mm. some depression in there, anxiety, you know, all of, you know, the baggage that I carried, I knew by, I want to say 11 or 12, I wanted to be a therapist. Wow. So yeah. Yeah. And I probably started going to therapy when I was like 13 or 14. Maybe I was 12. I can't really remember. It was middle school. So somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I knew that I, I wanted to be a therapist and I, I just never changed my mind. I just sort of stuck with it. You know, it's interesting that you went to therapy, uh, at that age only because, you know, 15 ish years ago, I, f- I still feel like there's a stigma around therapy in in a lot of aspects, but especially 15 years ago, I don't think it was looked at, um, as, beneficial even as it is today. So was that driven by your family or did you have, I mean, how, how did you even know that that was something that was an option and something you wanted to do? You know, I, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember if I went to my parents and said, I need to go to therapy or if they came to me and said, you need to go to therapy. I was aware that I was depressed. I knew Mm -hmm. that. Mm. Um, so that was sort of the trigger for it. And the anxiety, to be completely honest, I didn't realize like I couldn't name that I had anxiety probably until college. I just didn't know what that feeling was. So I knew that there was some depression in there, which cleared up mostly, you know, early 20s. Um, but the anxiety is something that I've now looking back, it's like I've always struggled with anxiety, but Mm. I had no words for it when I was younger. Even right. in therapy, I don't remember talking about anxiety. Mm. I don't remember naming it like that. Yeah. Let's talk about being on the flip side of that. Do, do you think that you, having been involved in therapy as a child, has given you a different perspective than a therapist who perhaps wasn't in therapy as a child? Or do you think it doesn't? At the end of the day, it doesn't particularly make a difference because you all have the same training. Well, yeah, I think it's a, maybe it's a little bit of both. I okay. think because I work with children 
having been on the other side of what it feels like to be in therapy when you're a child, mm-hmm. I think that helps um, because it can feel very hi- hierarchical and not like, I hope that when I see my individual clients who are adults, that they don't see me like looking down on them. Mm. But I think when you're a child and you're in therapy, it can often feel like another parent mm. and not necessarily a peer. So I think in that sense, having having experienced that myself, that has been beneficial. I think at large, most therapists have the training. And if you choose to like even work with children, you go above and beyond that because it it is, you know, so challenging. But I, I definitely don't think it hindered how I work or the perspective that I have in, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Okay. So you have all the answers for parents out there, right? You're going to tell us all <laughs> the right things to do. What What are some different approaches to child development that parents should be aware of? Oh my gosh. There's so many different yeah. approaches to Is child development. Is there a right one? No. I... Well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to come on here and say, oh, I know the right way to raise children and everybody listen up because I'm the expert. (laughs) (laughs) We're all sitting here with our notepads on dated breath. (laughs) I I would never put myself in that situation for that type of scrutiny. But what I will say is there are certain elements to parenting and nurturing that I think every single child needs. Um, and those, those make a really big impact for children. And some of that is, you know, how do you create a secure attra- attachment with your child? Hmm. And I think a lot of people hear about attachment when you're older. Oh, well, I wasn't securely attached to my mom and dad, or I was anxiously attached. And that's why, you know, I feel this way. But it's actually pretty simple. It's responding to your child's needs. And if you can do that, 85% of the time, you're most likely going to be able to form that bond with your child. It's children who are neglected or their parents sometimes are responsive and sometimes they are not. That creates confusion and distrust in the family unit. Mm. And those are the kids that grow up to have deeper problems. So security is important. Responding. Empathy is important. I think we know now that talking to kids about their emotions and validating them and helping them process, that's all really important. And it doesn't start in high school. It Mm -hmm. starts in the toddler years. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen, you know, with Nikos, he's not the first toddler that I've cared for, although he's my only child. Mm -hmm. But I've been able to, I wouldn't say experiment, but I've been able to watch other kids from infancy grow up and utilize some of these skills that I've been really mindful about teaching. And it makes a huge impact. Um, you know, so I think, I think intentional parenting where you're, the parent isn't just buying the kids toys mm. and putting them in front of the TV and feeding them meals and saying, that's good enough. It isn't. Um, God, there's so many, there's so many different approaches, Kelsey. I don't even know where to get started. I feel like I'm rambling now. No, but- not at all. I, it, it's all, Really interesting. So I give me an example of, or maybe I'll give you a situation, like a real life situation, and you can tell me how to approach it, right? Okay. Okay. Well, role play. This has never (laughs) happened to me, obviously, (laughs) but I pick up my kid from daycare and he is at the park. Sometimes they go to the park in the afternoon and he just loses his crap when I make him leave. I mean, it has started to be 
borderline embarrassing to the point where <laughs> a mother at the park the other day, like we locked eyes and she said, you got this mama. I mean, Aww. it's like, I know how sweet, but obviously she knew it, it was bad with, <laughs> with having to leave the park. So <laughs> Like, can is there an example of what I should do in that situation that kind of takes into account the different um, pieces that you were mentioning? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, let me just validate you that that is totally normal behavior for a toddler. Um, you know, it's something I think every parent goes through a mm. hundred times over. Um, but here, like if you were my client or even if you're my friend, like, here, okay, here's my perspective. Here's what I do. Here's what I literally do with Nikos. When we okay. go to the park, halfway through the time we're there, I'll set a timer. And I tell him, Nikos, I've set a timer. And when the timer goes off, we have to get in the stroller and we have to go home. And I make eye contact with him when I tell him. So I know he's listening. Mm. And he can shake his head yes, or he can completely ignore me. And I'll repeat it more than once. The timer is going to go off soon. When the timer goes off, we need to go in the stroller and we need to go home. So he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what to anticipate. And when that timer goes off, Nikos gets in the stroller and we go home. No tears. He's done it enough times now that he knows the drill. And one thing that I also do that I'm I'm a stickler about. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. I say what I mean, or I say, what is the phrase I always tell him? I say what I mean and I mean what I say. Mm. So he, the reason why I do that is because I want him to trust me. I'm not just giving him empty threats. I'm not saying five more minutes, but I really mean 10 or 15. I'm not saying if you don't get in the stroller, there'll be no dessert. It's time to go home. And like the timer's off, we get in the stroller and we go home. Mm. So, you know, and some of that comes from behavioral skills. Some of that I take from, um, you know, I took a, a class recently about conscious discipline and it talks a lot about assertive communication. And I, you know, in my work, I see a lot of parents who, you know, come and they're like, well, I asked my kid, you know, can you please put your shoes on? Like I've asked you 17 times and you're still not listening. And then I'm dragging him out the door and he's kicking and screaming. Mm. And a really simple way to change that is just to tell him it's time to put your shoes on and then give him a choice. Do you want to wear the red pair or do you want to wear the blue pair? Mm. You get to choose, but it is time to put on your shoes. So there's no please, there's no begging. And if it's difficult for them to make that choice after you ask a couple of times, then you make the choice for them and then you move on. So I think giving a choice, like if, if Augie is having a tantrum, you could even tell him like, it's time to get in the stroller. The timer went off. Do you want to run to the, or I guess you're probably getting in the car. Do you want right. to run to the car or do you want me to carry you? Or do you want to fly to the car? Or do you want to jump to the car? Because you mm. can make it fun and you can make it a choice, but he's still getting to, you know, have some independence in that. It's not just, I'm the mom, I make the decisions, you need to listen to me. And of course he doesn't want to because he wants to be independent. He wants right. to be autonomous. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that I pull from Montessori. And I think, you know, I maybe I've mentioned Montessori with you before, but we're like maybe 7, 30, 80, 20% Montessori at home. And I like it because it allows Nikos to have autonomy and independence and it fosters typical skills that any kid needs clean up after yourself this is a house that we all have together it's not your jungle gym to trash um so he participates in everything and i treat him like he's responsible and that instills high self-esteem in him and his ability to think he can do it 
let's talk about Montessori from a high level. I, mm-hmm. I have heard of Montessori schools and I think I understand the general concept, but why don't, why don't you tell me uh, when you say you approach, you approach it like Montessori, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah. So, um, Montessori is, yeah, I'm going to keep it really high level. Basically mm-hmm. it's about, you know, providing a safe and engaging environment for children that one promotes trust, but also gives them confidence to do things independently. So, you know, for Nikos, let's say it's time to get dressed in the morning. Mm-hmm. A typical way that Montessori would align this is a parent would set up a like kind of a mini wardrobe for them that they can reach themselves, that they can pick their own clothes, they can practice getting dressed by themselves. And then when they put their dirty clothes away, they can put it in their hamper by themselves. Mm. So they're learning how to do all these things independently. Obviously, like, I mean, I don't think Nikos can take his own clothes off, but he does help me put them in the, in the hamper. And when we're done changing diaper, he puts the wipes back on the dresser. And all of these things are just little skills that we practice throughout the day. The other thing about Montessori is that it's, it's not really about imaginative play. It's about tasks that get completed in their entirety. And you set up the environment in a way that fosters that. So there's like little trays with activities that have everything he would need from start to finish. So let's say he's practicing pouring water into a pitcher in a cup. If he spills, there's already a rag there so he can clean it up himself and he can carry the tray back to wherever it needs to go on the shelf. Hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's not like all about playing and toys a lot of it is like real life skills. As you get a little bit older, they, you know, they bring in a little bit more imaginative play, but the whole approach is about, these are real life things, real world views. Um, and you want kids to, to gain independence because that is what gives them like a high self-esteem to feel like they can do all the other things that come as they get older. Sure. Okay. Versus imaginative play. When you say that, that would be like giving the kid a truck and having them go room, room around the car or around the floor. Totally. Which is, okay. there's nothing wrong with that. Like Nikos loves his trucks, right? Like we, I'm not just going to deny him trucks because he loves them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing with Montessori is all about following the child. What is the child into? You know, don't push him learning his letters if he doesn't show any interest in it. Cause that's you deciding what's best for the child rather than the child being able to focus on what they want to learn and what skills they're ready to practice. Sure. Um, but like Waldorf is another approach that's much more imaginative and all about play and nature and, um, you know, learning the alphabet and your colors and all of that stuff isn't really important until the kids are much older. It's just they don't they don't emphasize it. And nothing is right or wrong about either approach. It's really what you want to do with your child. I also like Montessori because it's really pretty. It's wood toys keeps my house looking clean. Only a handful of toys come out at a time. Oh, you don't get all that plastic. I don't get all that plastic junk. There's no batteries with Montessori because everything is supposed to be like real life. Sure. You know, so we have a handful of things that we're gifted. um, But they're like special toys that come out every once in a while. Does Nikos have a preference towards knowing that what he's used to and then he kind of gets those special toys does he does he gravitate towards those or is he like no I'm cool with my my wood toys he likes both you know I haven't really noticed that big of um that big of a difference for him I notice though when he's playing with toys with flashing lights and all of that 
he's just not as engaged. It's more like he's mesmerized rather than him actually practicing any type of skill. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So do you think that the approach differs, the best approach differs by child or by parent preference or what what should parents consider when they're trying to decide what approach to take I think when it comes to these things like whatever is fine as long as the elements of empathy open communication um, helping kids learn how to regulate talk to them about you know, how are you feeling? Okay. And if you're feeling sad, how do we problem solve that? How do we teach kids to calm themselves? How do we teach them how to trust themselves and other people? I think those are the characteristics of like really good quality parenting, not just, oh, you should do Montessori or you should do Waldorf. Mm, It's way more important to be teaching mindfulness skills um, and showing up for your kids and actually being present, not putting them in front of a screen you know, for three hours a day than anything else. And when does that start, Nina? Are you, are you talking to Nikos right now about his feelings and about um, calming down and yeah. self-regulating? Yeah, we do. Um, when he, like when he has his little tantrums, I mean, they're ha- they haven't gotten really bad yet, but um, we do something that I call train breathing. And that's also pulled from conscious discipline and they call it star breathing. Okay. And, a big part of conscious discipline is, you know, that there are like three levels where there's like brain activation, right? And if physiologically we are in a fight or flight state when we can't control our emotions and we're overwhelmed and we're panicked, and this is like probably how Augie is when he's losing his mind at the park. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no point in trying to negotiate or problem solve when you're in that state of mind because your child cannot do it just like Mm -hmm. you can't do it as an adult. Mm -hmm. So in that state, you're working on just keeping the kid safe. The next state is the emotional state where there's a little bit more in between and that's your child is still sad. They still need you. They're looking for connection. They're looking for empathy. Um, They're looking for love and they're looking for nurture. So maybe you get, you know, hurt at the park. You need your mommy, you need hugs, you need all of that. And then executive state is when a child's actually able to problem solve and an adult. So when Nikos, when he's finally calm enough, where maybe he's still crying, he's still upset, but he's not like on the floor thrashing, screaming at me, I can start like trying to initiate train breathing. And I usually just model it. I say, you know what, you're really frustrated right now your face looks like this and I'll mimic his face. Like your voice looks like this and I'll mimic his face and his voice. And he can see me doing it. And he's engaged at that point. Mm. And I said, it's it's time to do our train breathing. So we're going to stop and we'll smile because smiling, um, it causes like all these neurotransmitters to fire in our brain and our muscles that tell us to be happy Mm. um, on a very basic level. Yeah. So we stop and we smile and then we take a deep breath and then we let it out like a train. And usually on the second try of me modeling it, he'll stop. He doesn't always smile. He doesn't know how to take a deep breath yet, but he will breathe out like a train. And that's it. Like it's, he just snaps out of it and then we can move on. You know, it's like, oh, so you really wanted the truck to go up the stair, but it couldn't because I don't know why. Right. And then he can nod his head. We can work it out. Oh, well, you know, the truck 
can't go that way. What can we do instead? And we can problem solve and move on. Mm. Um, so I started doing that a few months ago and it, it's really been a game changer for him. So the earlier you start, the better. I even think you could start modeling this a lot younger, kind of like sign language. You know, you can start mm-hmm. modeling sign language at six months, usually around 12 years or 12 months old where your child will actually start using it. Right. Right. Do you think, Nina, that this practical, real world experience that you have as a parent has impacted your professional career at all? Meaning, do you think that you have like relatable examples for your clients or perhaps you empathize with them more? uh, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I think it goes both ways. I think having the knowledge and the training as a therapist has helped me, especially with kids. Um, And I also think now that I'm a parent, it it certainly helps me empathize with families more. And now I I have more examples because I'm in the thick of it with a toddler. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like that certainly makes it easier too. Um, but yeah, they both just really inform one another. I wouldn't know half the stuff I know now about Montessori or, you know, breathing or mindfulness skills if I wasn't a therapist. Like I don't, I don't think I would have spent time reading about any of these things if I didn't already have an awareness of it. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. What, what's the most rewarding part of your job? Well, what is the most rewarding part? I mean, I want to say helping people. Mm. But, you know, sometimes progress is slow. I I think the moments in therapy when a client can connect the dots about, oh, my gosh, that one thing that I thought was insignificant that happened 15 years ago, I didn't know I was holding on to. Mm. And I see that I have been. And it has played out with all of these, you know, other parts of my life being impacted. And it's brought me to this moment. And I finally understand. Mm-hmm. Like that is, that is why I'm a therapist. It's mm-hmm. the connecting the dots. It's the healing that comes in that. That is super rewarding. Of course, hearing, I appreciate you. Um, or, you know, therapy's had such an impact on my life. That's always nice too. But I like watching my, my clients grow more than anything or having a win, you know, or we've talked about this thing that you should work on for a year and you finally did it in practice in real life. And it worked out just as we'd said it would. Mm. that feels good yeah yeah it's it's a lot of time and and energy and effort on both of your parts that pays off in the end that I can see where that would be super rewarding yeah so one thing that you had mentioned Nina that I didn't ask about you said you work primarily with BIPOC community Mm -hmm. why do you like that focus? Is that your chosen focus? Did it naturally happen? Talk to me a little bit about that. It fell into my lap. Okay. It was not something I, you know, when I went to school, I was like, I'm not working with kids. That's going to be way too difficult. You can't fix a kid unless you fix their parents and no parents ever on board for therapy. Like I was so negative about it. And then I had a professor that was like, no, you're definitely going to work with kids. Just wait. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And of course that's like, first thing I did out of school is work with kids and it's just stuck with me. Um, But then, you know, when I was finishing like up my hours to be fully licensed independently, I worked at a private practice. And I think, 
you know, I didn't have Hickman as my last name on my psychology today profile, which is where like people find me. Mm -hmm. Um, I had my middle name, which is like what I was going by professionally and it's Persian. And I think people were finding me assuming that I was like non-white, not American, that I would understand them. And before I knew it, I like looked at my clients and I was like, I don't really work with white people. Oh, and then we started talking about it. Yeah, we would like talk about it in session. Like, oh, I I picked you because I'm looking for someone who can relate to me in this way. I picked you because I figured you'd have an understanding of my family cultural and my background. I get that all the time now. And before I wasn't so like focused on that population, but now I've sort of um, made it the the population that I work with because that's who gravitates towards me anyway. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. You didn't set out to do it. They found you. Mm -mm. Yeah. Do you have different kinds of things that you're working through with that population that you wouldn't have if you just had all white people? Most people right now over the last year, for a good reason, we've had an influx of people needing therapy. Mm -hmm. Um. And the issues that they want to work on are largely related to the trauma that they face. I get a lot of people who are looking to deal with that. Um, And a lot of people who are just like, I don't understand my place in society and the world anymore. Mm. I don't belong here. Um, And really having to work on reframing a lot of that outside of, of the trauma. And a lot of the clients I have too, you know, their family might have immigrated here and some of them maybe have not and they've come here for school and now they're sort of in this in-between of like well I've adopted all these American cultural aspects Mm. but my family still wants me to be this other person I don't want to be that person anymore Mm. and that's a true battle within a family system that I can really empathize with um, for those clients because that on top of what's going on in the world makes up much of what they're dealing with seem impossible or insurmountable. We'll be back after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Strip. After several months of maternity leave, I am back to work, which means I'm also back to wearing makeup. While I do enjoy wearing makeup, I have never enjoyed the process of removing it at the end of the day. Until now, I've been using a new product I love called Strip. It does more than just remove your makeup, though it does do that well. It is skincare that truly nourishes your face with nutrients and vitamins, leaving behind noticeably healthier looking skin. It's made up of clean ingredients and it doesn't have a zillion steps that, frankly, I just don't have time for. I've even shared it with family and friends and we all agree it leaves your skin feeling so soft and looking replenished. My favorite product is the Caviar Jelly Remover. It removes my makeup while hydrating with these fun, bursting nutrient bubbles. Support your favorite podcast with an awesome product. Check out Strip and use my discount by visiting stripyourmakeup.com forward slash apparently. Strip your makeup, not your skin. Now back to Parently with your host, Kelsey Higgins. Listening to you talk and maybe this is a part of your training, it sounds like it would be so emotionally exhausting 
that there would be, I would presume, a burnout rate. Is that is that true? Have you seen oh that God. in your profession? <laughs> yes, 100, 110%. Burnout rate is, is pretty horrendous, mm. um, especially if you work for an agency, if you're a social worker, um, if you're working in a hospital, 110%. Um, I literally like two days ago wrote on like one of my psychology networking groups. I was like, I don't know how to take care of myself now that I'm a mom and I am so burnt out. Like I'm ready to take a leave from my job. Help me other mamas. Mm. And so many people responded um, because self-care is, is fairly easy when you're, you know, just you and your husband. And, you know, I work part time. Um, in my own private practice, I get to make my own schedule, but everything changes when you're a mom. Mm -hmm. Um, and then everything re like this year, the work that I do has been significantly heavier mm -hmm. than years prior. Um, and yes, burnout is extremely high. I'm very grateful that I'm also in a field where self-care is not only, um, an ethical obligation, but something that everybody supports. So nobody would think twice if I was like, I, I need three weeks to myself, oh. you know, and although I would feel guilty about it, telling my clients, I also know that nine times out of 10, my clients would be like, you need to do that. And I'm okay with it. Because it, it is mirroring our conversation about being a mom. It makes you a mm -hmm. better therapist. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Which is why there's that ethical obligation. Like you need to take care of yourself before you take care of your clients or your issues bleed into the session. Is there any training that you have around, I don't think compartmentalizing is the right word, but are you supposed to be emotionally invested in your clients or are you trained to kind of keep an arm's length? You are trained to keep an arm's length. And the term we use is like self-disclosure. Okay. You only disclose if it is for the benefit of the client, not for yourself. Mm. Um, and I think typically that's fairly easy, but there's always times when, you know, sharing a personal story could help a client see things differently. And you have to decide, do I want to share this part of myself with this person? Do I want to let them into my world? Does that really benefit them? Mm. Um, and I think the longer you're in the field, the harder it is to be so like a stickler about it. I certainly was at the beginning. I was like, I'm not talking about myself. You will know nothing about my family. It's why I didn't use my last name. I didn't want people to be able to find them. Mm -hmm. um, Interesting. And now, yeah, I'm really protective about it. And therapists, like the stalking rate is pretty high. So I was just worried. I watched too many murder shows. Like I was like, someone's going to murder me. <laughs> like I, <laughs> you know, I just like... <laughs> I was really serious about being protective, but as I started my own practice, I work with mostly women and I trust them. Um, I think if I were working with men, I'd feel different, mm. uh, differently about it. Maybe it's still a little bit more nervous, but I will say there's also, um, not every client asks you about yourself. Some clients never even say, how are you? Like mm. I could go three days with no one ever asking me how I'm doing. How's my day going? you know, any of my feelings are. And then I have a handful of clients that always ask, you know, so it also depends on, on the individual that I'm working with. Do you have a, a preference towards one or the other, or are you just there to serve whatever 
in whatever style they like. No one's ever asked me that. I've never thought about it. <laughs> um, I think there is some value in the clients who, you know, the little bit that I share about myself, you know, the little bit of investment that they also have in me. I think there can be a benefit in, I don't want to say the closeness in the relationship because that's not the right word. Mm. But perhaps when I let a little bit of myself in, it allows them to be a little bit more vulnerable. They trust me just a little bit more because I'm not just a shell. Sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So which is why I, I tend to share a little bit if my clients ask. I always tell them, you are welcome to ask me whatever you want. I get to decide whether or not I answer. Mm. Is there truth around when when people are always talking about, you know, you have to find a therapist who is a, a good fit. Is Do you feel like you could work with anyone or do you agree? Like, have you had situations where you've thought or said, hey, I'm not the best fit for you or I, I don't know. Has that come up? 100%. Yeah. You, you definitely do need to find the right fit for a couple of reasons. Um, one research shows that you liking your therapist has a bigger impact on the outcomes of therapy than your therapist skill set. Mm. So I think that's the biggest reason. The other thing is you don't want to go to a therapist who doesn't have training in the thing that you're trying to work through. You know, like I'm not there to treat your OCD. That's not my skill set. I can treat it on a very high level, but if that's the main issue you're coming to me, I'm not the right therapist for mm. you. And I know that. So yeah, you definitely want to like do your do due diligence, but also the therapists are trained not to be offended. Like if someone comes to therapy for a few sessions, they're like, this isn't working for me. I don't think we jive well. Cool. Let me send you some referrals. I don't want you to be here if I'm not a good fit for you either, because I want you to get the help you need. Right. That's interesting. Do you get nervous meeting with like new clients or anything? I don't. You don't. And here's why. I have an intake form with all these questions that I get to ask. And at the end, if I'm like, I don't like this client, they're not the right fit for me. I can tell them that. Um, But it's because I'm behind the guise of intake paperwork and I'm taking notes and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, I'm not like on the spot. They are. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. So it's just such an interesting job that you have. Do you foresee yourself doing it for the rest of your life, your working life? I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what else I would do if I, if I wasn't in this field. I mean, I imagine that at some point, maybe some of it will shift or maybe I'll find a different population to work with, or at least to add on to. Um, I think a lot about what, what next steps in my career look like. And I think as a, uh, you know, I, I want more kids and that makes it a little bit more complicated to think about mm-hmm. growth in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't imagine ever not being in a helping field in some in some capacity. Mm. Maybe I'd write a book. Like maybe I would do something, something more like that. Um, I used to like blog ten years ago about like mental health stuff, and I loved it. And then I stopped doing that, ironically, because it was just too vulnerable at the time in my life, and I couldn't do it, so I mm. shut down. But. <laughs> Yeah, now now I look back and think, oh, I wish I kept writing because it had so much value. So maybe I would do something like that. Super cool. Yeah. Okay, last question. My listeners are primarily parents, not all parents, but primarily 
parents. What would you tell them in regard to if they're they're thinking, oh, I, I don't know, my I feel like my kid maybe needs to go to therapy or I don't I don't know if it's the right step for us, but you know, it seems like X, Y, and Z. Are there different signs that parents should watch for? Or do you think all kids should be in therapy? Like what are what's your recommendation around that? At some point all kids should be in therapy. I hope that it, you know, over the next 10, 20 years, our school system starts to offer that to children, mm. at least on a monthly basis, because I think, you know, too many people don't learn the skills of how to take care of yourself mentally, right? We go to gym class and, and we, we learn all eat well and exercise and get a good job and go to college, but we don't learn how to take care of ourselves. And if you can't take care of yourself mentally, like nothing else really matters. That is such um, a good point. Yeah. It, yeah. So I think all kids should go to therapy. I think, you know, if you're, if, if you're a parent and at any moment you're thinking something isn't right, my child's behaving differently, I'm behaving differently, you, you know, things just feel off, mm-hmm. it is worth exploring. There's no harm and looking for a therapist and start, starting therapy, you can always stop. It's not permanent. Uh, you can always find a new therapist if it's not the right fit. But I would trust your gut. Like if, if something doesn't quite feel right, seek help. Because if you wait too long and problems fester too long, that can create like lifelong issues in a child when, when you were talking about most of brain development mm. happening in those years. Mm-hmm. So that's the part that I think is critical. Like you can change the brain much more easily in a child than you can an adult. Yeah. Awesome. That that makes a lot of sense. I like how you correlate it back to other aspects of wellness and how we address those in in our society, but not necessarily the mental health part of it. So that's really, really interesting. Good point. I thought this was a really, really interesting conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time to spend your afternoon with me. I know you have a lot of competing priorities, but I really appreciate it. And Mm. all the listeners will appreciate it too. So thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining today. I invite you to tune in again next week for another insightful conversation. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.